1 Timothy, we've got a chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Let's turn to that now. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Page numbers on the back of the green sheet, if that helps you. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How do these verses relate to you? How do these verses relate to you? They're about rich people. They're written for rich people. Is that you? Probably. Probably is. We're rich compared with most people in the world and compared with most people throughout history. We have possessions that most people in the world could only dream of having and most people in history never heard of. So when you think of it that way, it seems obvious. Yes, of course, we're massively rich. Now, having said that, it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Most people in the world don't have a car and don't have internet internet access. Having those puts you really up in the top, small percentage. But having a car and having internet access aren't exactly indulgent luxuries in the UK. I don't suppose we call them necessities, but they're not indulgent luxuries. In fact, in some ways, life could be quite hard without them. In other words, there are very high costs of living in the UK today. So we can't presume that everyone sitting here in this room is rich with lots of spare cash to throw around. Can't presume that. But still, most people here are rich enough for these verses to apply to them. If you're not, if it's a struggle to make ends meet... Well, you still need what these verses tell you about money and your attitude to it. Because actually, these verses aren't just for the rich. There are dangers here for those who are not rich too. Children and teenagers here, you might think, well, these verses aren't for you because you're not earning stacks of money. But actually, I think they really are very relevant to you. Because when you're at school, there is a lot of judging people by what they own by their possessions. Thinking about what you'd like to have and saving up for what you're scheming to get can actually be quite a big issue in your thoughts. So children and teenagers, these verses are for you also. Here's another thing about how these verses relate to you. What is Timothy told to do to rich people? In verse 17 and again verse 18. What's he told to do to rich people? To command them. Notice that. Here he is leading a church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago and he's getting his instructions about how to lead it. And he's told, well, you've got to command people. 
Not just give them information. Not just preach them a sermon that means they could explain what 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 to 19 mean. Do you sometimes treat sermons like that? Oh good, that sermon means I can now explain those verses. Not just suggest things to them, command. So this evening I need to command. If you don't like being commanded, well your quarrel is with God's word, not with me. And tonight, the sole purpose is for you to obey, to do it. However much you might leave here understanding, or whatever thoughts or discussion might be stimulated by tonight, it's been a failure if you don't do it. Now, there is a danger with all this, so I don't want you to misunderstand it, because... This doesn't mean that I'm presuming that you're not obeying. You see, now, you might think, well, I'm just presuming that you're not obeying, and I'm about to hammer you over the head over it. No. When it says command, it doesn't mean beat you over the head and make you feel guilty on the presumption that you're not obeying. I think, actually, many people here are doing what these verses say. And I don't really know who the people are who are doing it and who are those who don't do it. So don't worry if you think, now, which category does he think I'm in? Because we don't really know what each other do with our money. So this isn't about a beat-up on the presumption that we're failing in this. But we are continually in danger of being sucked in by our society's materialism and its I-must-have mentality. And so we we do need these commands here in these verses. So let's get into them and see what are we commanded. First of all, we have a negative command in verse 17. We start with a negative command. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The first command here is very simple, don't be arrogant. There's nothing complicated about this. The word here simply means don't feel superior to others. That's what you're being commanded, and I'm being commanded. Don't feel superior to others. Do you have any feeling superior to others because you're better off than them? Because you're successful. Maybe that's because you're more able, or you're harder working, or you've made better decisions, or your life is less chaotic and disorganised than whoever those other people are. Maybe you drive a better car, or live in a better house than them. Or you eat better food and wear better clothes than them. Or children and teenagers here, do you feel superior to anyone else at school because your clothes and your phone and what you were given at Christmas are better than theirs? That's very simple. Here we're told, don't do it. Don't be arrogant. I hope you've seen, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, from us going through Luke's Gospel, that again and again and again we're shown in Luke's Gospel Any such feeling superior is a contradiction to the gospel. The good news of Jesus coming for the humble, who don't in any way feel superior to others. So there it is, very simple. I'm not going to say any more about it. We just need to do it. It says, don't be arrogant. 
And then there's another negative command here in this verse. And again, it's very simple. We're commanded not to put our hope in wealth. And this one probably needs a bit more unpacking. What does it mean to put your hope in something? How do you put your hope in something? Well, it means you look to it as that's what will make me happy. It's the thing you're aiming for because that's what will make me happy. That's what will make me secure. So let's have a think. What are the signs that you're putting your hope in wealth? Here are a few signs. First of all, how much time and thought goes into getting money? Now, you need to work, and it's sensible to plan and to budget, so I'm not saying don't do them, but are you going beyond that sensible need and loving to work out how much money can you get and how well are your saving schemes going? And how can I get more money? And does it consume too much of your thoughts? A sign you're putting your hope in wealth. Here's another sign. Is it what you're looking forward to? Oh, life will be good when I've got that salary. When I can afford that item. Now again, it's not wrong to look forward to getting the mortgage paid off or to having that new set of clothes, or whatever it is that you like to spend your money on, but how much does it consume your thoughts? Is it the thing you're aiming for? Because that will make you happy. Your hope is in wealth. Here's another little test. Is it what gives you peace of mind? Your security for the future is your savings. You've got quite a good amount set by. Your pension fund is doing well. Your insurance policies are are okay. Again, it's not wrong to have them, but are they your security? You couldn't have any peace without them. Well, in that case, they've taken God's place. You're putting your hope in wealth. Very simple. Verse 17, a command, don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in wealth. Two simple commands for us to do. God's a very kind father, and he doesn't just give us naked commands. It would be his right to, he's king, but he's also a kind father. So he doesn't just give us naked commands, he gives us reasons. And there are reasons here in verse 17 why we should obey these commands. Let's have a look at them. The first one is very straightforward. Because wealth is so uncertain. Do you see it there in verse 17? Don't be arrogant about your wealth. And don't put your hope in wealth, it's so uncertain. In the late 1990s, I put some of my money, quite a bit of my money, in shares for technology companies. It was the era of the dot-coms. And they were shooting up. And I was rather pleased I could buy some shares. I think it was the first time. Actually, it was the only time I bought some shares. You might understand why in a minute. Because I enjoyed working out how much I could get. And I spent quite a bit of time looking at the figures. Always wanting to see which way the figures were going. And thinking about what I could do with that money. Do you see how that compares with verse 17? That is blatant, putting your hope in wealth. And you know what happened in the late 90s to those dot-coms? Yeah, I expect many of you do. The market crashed and my shares went through the floor and they became worth about a fifth of what I put in and they never recovered. Wealth is so uncertain. There are so many ways to lose it. 
That's the first reason to obey this command. Here's a second reason, a very positive reason. Because our hope should be in God. See that there in verse 17? Don't put your hope in wealth, because your hope should be in God. Wealth is uncertain, he is certain. That's the contrast being made. Wealth is dependent on so many things that can go wrong, God is independent, never caught out by anything. Imagine someone is persuading you to invest with them. They've got some scheme for making money and they say, you put your money in and we'll both make money together. What questions would you ask them? Ah, surely you'd do a bit of finding out who is this person. Does he know what he's talking about? You'd want to look and see, has he put his money where his mouth is? Is he putting his money in? Has this cost him anything? You'd want to see what is his track record. Has he ever done this sort of thing before? Does he have a track record of it working? Have others put their hope in his schemes? And can they tell me what their experience was? Well, compare all of that with putting your hope in God. He says here, put your hope in, not just some scheme of his, but in him himself. He's the creator. Does he know what he's talking about? He knows the end from the beginning, the Bible says. Has he put his money where his mouth is, if we can say such a thing of God? Oh yes, he's paid for this investment. He's given his son. Our eternal life has cost him, cost him that gruesome death. Has he got a good track record? Oh, his good news has been around for thousands of years. And you can talk to people who have invested with God. You can read down through church history about people who've put their hope in him. You can find their experience and how he has proved trustworthy. There's a reason to obey this command because there's there's someone better to put your trust in. God himself. And here's another reason to obey this command, still in verse 17. Because God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. This is a remarkable phrase. Do you know what the word asceticism means? Asceticism is the idea that enjoyment is wrong. That being harsh on ourselves is good. A lot of religious people have had this idea. That's why monks would take vows of poverty and shut themselves up in a monastery. The the idea that it's good to be harsh on yourself and there's something guilty about any enjoyment. But it's not what the Bible teaches. No, it teaches. We have a God who gives to us for... Not for our subsistence, not for our just about surviving, for our enjoyment. That tells us these verses are not anti-riches. These verses are not saying it's wrong to be rich. It's not something to feel guilty about. I reckon there's a lot of feeling guilty about being rich around. But this verse doesn't say feel guilty about your riches. Years ago there was a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. I think it probably said some good things, but it also did a bit of beating people up, feel guilty about your riches. And someone wrote a book in response called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. I thought that was quite a good title in response. There was Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and then there was 
productive Christians in an age of guilt manipulators. I think actually both books had some good things to say. You probably get the right to the right place if you took a bit of both books. These verses are not guilt manipulators. All we have is given by God, and he's concerned for our enjoyment. That's that's well worth thinking about that phrase. It's an amazing phrase. He's concerned for our enjoyment. It's not wrong to enjoy the things you own, but it also tells you this. Even your enjoyment of them is in God's hands. Even what you have, You won't enjoy unless God gives you that gift. That's what we read in Ecclesiastes. The ability to enjoy what you have is a gift from God. Not everyone has that gift. Some people have riches. Some people have, or so many have had, their luxury retirement planned. And they've saved up. And they've been very sensible about how they've saved up and prepared. And so many have never enjoyed it. Because that enjoyment has been stopped by ill health or by bereavement, or by death. It's a gift from God to be able to enjoy the good things that you own. Good food, a good holiday, a day out, the satisfaction of a good day's work. Not wrong to take enjoyment in these things, and it's a gift from God. You won't be able to unless God gives you that gift. Some people, whatever they have, are discontented. Contentment's a gift from God. And this is reason not to boast in riches and not to hope in riches. They are God's gift. There are plenty of people in the world he could have given them to who were better than you and me. But he gave you to them for that anxiety-free enjoying them now. Not that anxiety-inducing hoping for more or wondering how you compare with others and boasting about them. That just produces anxiety. That actually stops you enjoying them. So I hope you see that verse 17 is far from being a harsh command. Verse 17 says, you can put your hope in money and it is uncertain and it doesn't care for you and it doesn't reward or satisfy, it just continually gets you wanting more. Or you can put your hope in God and he is so certain and he is such a loving father He cares for you and even cares about you enjoying yourself. Who do you think we could dare to say that? The God of the universe cares about you enjoying yourself. What a loving father. Here's an example that might help the teenagers and the children. We're thinking about how this applies to them. I hope it does. When I was in year eight at school, at the beginning of year eight, there was a boy in my class and he got some £35 high-tech basketball boots. Oh, everyone envied his £35 high-tech basketball boots. Everyone wanted to look at them. Well, I won't say everyone, you know what I mean. A lot of people did. And most of the boys, they put aside and saved up from their paper round money so that they could buy £35 basketball boots by high-tech. And those who managed to get them, oh, I'm sure they looked down on the ones who didn't have them. You see, that's verse 17 happening. Putting hope in wealth and being arrogant. But do you know what happened during the year I was in year eight at school? Nike brought out their air range, Nike Air. 
from about £70 upwards. And Reebok brought out the Reebok pump basketball boot that were about £120. And nobody would be seen dead in a £35 pair of high-tech basketball boots. In fact, I think nobody would admit they'd ever had any. It just all of a sudden transformed. And probably you've not even heard of high-tech, because nobody would have that. It all changed in that one year. You see, don't put your hope in riches and possessions. Ah, They're so uncertain. So many things can change them. But also, don't be making comparisons. How do you compare with what other people have got? Because when you do that, you get taken up with the comparisons. You don't even enjoy the things you've got. I bet that most of those boys who got those trainers didn't actually enjoy the trainers. They're just bothered about how do they compare with other people. Children and teenagers don't go in for it. There's something better here. Just simply enjoying what God gives. Let's move on to a positive command in verses 18 to 19. A positive command. Verse 17 has commanded those of us who are rich about our attitudes. But it hasn't commanded us not to be rich. Notice that. It hasn't commanded us not to be rich. Money is not bad. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And actually, money can be used to do a lot of good. And that's what we're commanded to do in verse 18. Let's read it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now this is basically one command that starts off being expressed very broadly, just do good, and then it narrows it down to what the doing good is. To make it clear, it means being generous and willing to share with others. Like verse 17, it's actually a very simple command. I think we all know what it means. Be good by being generous and willing to share. So if you are rich, you've got to avoid the attitudes of verse 17 and you've got to do the actions of verse 18, generous giving. It's very simple. So let's ask ask yourself some simple questions. Do you give? Do you give generously? Now comes the much less simple question. How do you know the answer to that last question? How do you know whether your giving is generous? That's actually a very difficult question. It would be easy if we had a rule like, give 10%. Wouldn't that be so easy? And you just look at your accounts, I'm giving 10% tick. I'm not giving 10%, okay, bump it up. And then you know. That would make life very simple, wouldn't it? But Christian living isn't like that. That's not how gospel-shaped living works. Gospel-shaped giving is Christ-like giving. And Christ-like giving is giving that costs you. As Christ gave himself in a way that cost him so much, gave in a way that put others first. Now, you will never give as much as Jesus gave. I hope we all recognise that. Your giving will never be as costly as his. And so, this is where we hit a big problem and danger, which is the danger of always feeling guilty. So often when Christians feel guilty, it's in the I ought to do more category. I ought to be doing more. I ought to be giving more. I ought to be... It's often the I ought to do more category. 
But we're not supposed to feel guilty all the time. If you've fallen into sin, yes, you should feel guilty until you've repented and taken it to Christ for forgiveness. If you're outside of Christ, you ought to feel guilty because you're still in your guilt and your sins before God and you need that forgiven. But God is a kind Father and his aim is not to make us feel guilty. So there's a difficulty here because we could just continually beat ourselves up. I ought to give more. How do we get round this? How do we think rightly about this? And not just go away and carry on with selfishness, but not beat ourselves up. Well, it seems to me the key to this is not to start with how much should I give? How much is enough? The key to this is why did Jesus give himself? Why did Jesus give in such a costly way? Oh, the answer's simple. Because he loved us. And he would do whatever it took to save us. It wasn't suffering and dying as an end in itself. It was suffering and dying out of love for us and to do something for us that made a difference, an eternal difference for us. And so the key to doing verse 18 is, do we love? Do we love? Do you love your fellow Christians around you who have less than you? Do you think about, your lo- about their lives and how you could help them? Do you love the poor in this world? Does the suffering of people in Syria move your compassion? Or have you got compassion fatigue because it's just been going on for so long? Do you find out about people in this world without clean water to drink and wonder what could you do about it? Do you love? Do you love the people who are heading towards being judged by God and they're not ready? Do you care that millions in Central Asia don't know that Jesus is the Saviour? Do you love? Do you love the church of the Lord Jesus? Do you love the Lord Jesus himself and want him to be honoured and obeyed? That's where to start. Not how much should I give and how do I compare with that, but do I love? And if I love, then what will I do about those things? About those people I love? What will I do to meet those needs rather than insisting on maintaining my standard of living as if my money is just there for me? It's all about me. This giving must be driven from love rather than from guilt. It must be driven by wanting to do good to others, rather than by wanting to feel good about yourself. We shouldn't start with how much should I give, but we've got to start with loving God and others. And then, I'm sure we'll get this right and we'll give. There's a command, and again we're given reason to do it, and the reasons are in verse 19. And the first reason is this, getting money and things is just for the present world and it's so uncertain. But being generous and willing to share gets you treasure that's not just for this present world and it's a really firm, stable foundation. Can you see that there if you compare verse 17 and verse 19? Getting money and things is just for here and now and it's so uncertain. But this life of generosity That makes a difference for the world to come and it's a firm foundation. Do you see them there? But more importantly, do you see which one's worth doing? 
That's the big question. Do you see which one is worth doing? Now, you might say to that, okay, I can see it's there, and I can see which one sounds more worth doing, but how does doing good with money, how does being generous store up treasure in heaven? How does that work? Sounds rather like Islam. You know, what, what, does, a, what does a Muslim do? The five pillars of Islam, one of which is giving money, and if they do them well enough, they get to heaven. Is that what's going on here? Give money, be generous, and you get into heaven. Well, 1 Timothy has been clear, as is the Bible as a whole. No, it's not that. Uh, If I just read to you chapter 1, verse 15, that will be enough to tell you that. Chapter 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. There we are, that's straightforward, isn't it? Jesus came to save, and the way you get that is being saved. And the way you get eternal life is simply trusting him. The mercy of Jesus comes to those who believe, not those who earn it by giving enough. But the Bible is also clear, repeatedly clear, this faith isn't seen by agreeing to a set of doctrines. This faith isn't seen by how often you attend church. This faith is seen by living it. This is so often in the Bible. This is what we were hearing this morning as well. God looks for practical evidence that your trust in Jesus is real. Imagine it this way. Two people go on Dragon's Den. Now, I expect some of you know what Dragon's Den is, this TV programme where people go and they've got an invention or an idea and they want the rich people on Dragon's Den to invest in it. So two people go on Dragon's Den and they both claim their invention will make millions and you ought to put your money in their invention. One of them says, I've sunk all my life savings in this because I'm convinced it's going to work. And they look at his accounts, oh, it's true. He has sunk all his life savings in it. Another, the other one, he says, my invention is going to make millions. This is the thing to put your money in. They look in his accounts, he's put £500 in it. While also putting £5,000 into various other shares and savings accounts. Which one will they believe? Which one do they think really believes in his invention? It's obvious, isn't it? You know the answer. The one who sunk his money in it. If you're not obeying these verses, doesn't it mean you're not really confident in Jesus' promises about eternity? If you're not obeying these verses, doesn't it really mean you're thinking, I'd better hedge my bets. I'll have a bit of Christianity. I'll have enough to, to make me think everything will be okay. But I'd better also grab some of what the world offers. I don't want my Christianity to be too costly. I've got to grab these other things as well in case Christ's promises turn out disappointing or even untrue. Surely, if you're trusting Christ's promises about eternity, you will be doing these verses. There's another reason here for obeying these verses. 
In this way, verse 19, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I'm sure that at least part of what this verse means is this. The Bible tells us many times about rewards. The Bible talks about rewards for Christians that are affected by what we do in the Christian life. Now, God doesn't owe us anything. He never owes us anything. Nothing we do is good enough to merit a place in heaven. But God is a kind father. And he does love to reward his children. And God is a wise father who recognises the need to motivate his children. This is a neglected topic. I don't hear much about it. But I don't think it should be because many times the Bible tells us, and, and this was Luke 19 that we heard this morning, that what we do makes a difference. God does reward his people's faithfulness, including in their use of money. I don't know exactly what the reward is. I don't think the Bible tells us exactly what the reward is. But I do know it's from a father. And that makes all the difference. Think of it this way. On the wall of the office, round the back there, there are some pieces of art. Well, I'll call them pieces of art, but they'd never get in an art gallery. And I don't think anyone else would put them up on their wall. So why have I got them up on the wall there? You can guess, can't you? Because they were drawn by my children. And they're my children. And I'm their father. And I love them. So I want to show my appreciation of them. Well, isn't it rather like that here? Fellow Christian, you are God's child. And he loves you. And so however poor your attempts to serve him might be, he wants to show his appreciation. Now think of that. To know God's appreciation. Won't that be reward? Here's another reason for obeying these verses. One more, this is the last one, and it's the end of verse 19. If you see the end of verse 19 there so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the way to take hold of real life, true life. Let's have a think about what true life is like. Imagine two dogs. One is a pampered poodle. It spends its life sitting on a fluffy armchair, being fed biscuits, having its hair permed in that ridiculous poodle way, and its claws trimmed. The other is a border collie. It spends its day rounding up sheep and then goes home to its kennel in the farmyard and chews on a solid chunk of beef. Which is real life for a dog? Which one's real life for a dog? I'm sure you must agree, surely, it's the border collie, isn't it? That's what a dog's life is supposed to be like. Surely, that's what a dog is made for. Not sitting on an armchair and having its hair permed. Rounding up sheep and chewing a piece of beef in its kennel and enjoying it. What were you made for? Pampering? Entertainment? Indulgence? No. You were made for a Christ-like life of serving and self-giving, and enjoying God's good gifts. It's not, go on, get out there and graft, and grit your teeth. No, it's serving and self-giving, and enjoying God's good gifts, like the Border Collie chewing its good-hearted piece of beef. 
So take hold of that life now, including by what you do with your money, and then enjoy its rewards forever. Let's finish with this. All preaching should exalt Jesus. All preaching should be aiming to exalt Jesus. How does this preaching exalt Jesus? It exalts Jesus by us doing it. That's how it will exalt Jesus, if we do it, if we obey these verses. So, it's very simple, isn't it? Let me remind you, because it's very simple, but we must do it. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Do be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. And that will be different from the people around you. And that will do what, remember, the whole of 1 Timothy is about. That will be a pillar that displays Jesus to the world around. So let's do that.